astonishing, enthralling, exciting, immersive. None of these words could sensibly apply to the three and a quarter hour wet smurf a haunt to Stodgathon that is Avatar <laughs> The Way of Water. Blurb of the year from Mark Kermode of The Observer in UK. I don't agree. I think it's a really good movie, but a hell of a blurb to kick things off. Avatar The Way of Water, one of our featured reviews this week. We got lots of new movies to talk, and Avatar just roared into theaters, but coming out this Friday, as we're recording this on Monday, December 19th, Babylon, massive film starring Margot Robbie and Brad Pitt from Academy Award-winning director Damien Chazelle. Also coming up this Friday, Women Talking, Sarah Pauly's new film, Rooney Mara, Claire Foy, Jesse Buckley. Also in theaters, The Inspection, starring the Golden Globe nominated Jeremy Pope. Also available on Netflix, December 30th, White Noise, starring the Golden Globe nominated Adam Driver. We got lots. And in fact, there's even one that I didn't even tell Cody about because it's one of the worst movies of the year. I'll reveal that in a second. But wow. that's eight movies we reviewed last week, and we're doing six movies this week. Plus, we have a wild card. It's author Michael Starr with the new book, Don Rickles, Merchant of Venom. He's got great stories about Rickles working on Casino with De Niro and Scorsese, working with the great Richard Lewis, uh, Toy Story, Larry Sanders show. Awesome stuff here. So, a lot of 14 movies we're packing in the next two weeks. And by the way, Chris and I are off next week for the holidays, so our first episode of January will feature reviews of All Quiet on the Western Front, the German film, which is up for a Golden Globe Best Foreign Film, The Sun which is uh, from Florian Zeller. He did The Father, which won Anthony Hopkins an Oscar. The Son is his follow-up. Hugh Jackman just got nominated for Best Actor at the Golden Globes. But most importantly, my buddy Alpha Helwan waiting among many, the top 10 films of 2022. I'll give you my top 10 list on the next episode of Cinephile, which will be coming out in early January. But Cody, a lot of good feedback to our last episode, which featured a 25-minute review of Moss Miami. So much so, I came on the Dan Levitard show last mm. week. You called me up. First, I got a spam risk Miami. I go, okay, I can't answer this call, but you texted, call the liner, I'd do it. I love being on with you guys. The main takeaway was just my walking tour of Miami. But how about the fact in the midst of my answer about Top Gun, you guys just cut me off. Just just a throwback to the old show, Vert cut off mid-sentence. You completely edited out my answer about the Mets. Stugatz asked me about Kodai Senga, not in the interview. Really? That There must have been an issue there. There was no like discussion of like, oh, we need to cut everything Adnan just said. There might have been a technical issue. I, I didn't. I don't remember any discussion of we need yeah. to cut some of what Adnan just did. Mike Ryan went rogue because somebody somebody actually tweeted me and goes, hey, I love the fact Adnan's interview was cut off. What a great callback. And I go, what, what do you mean it was cut off? I'm like, no. So I listened to it. We had all the Miami walking tour stuff. We had a little bit of Top Gun. And then Stu was like, oh, how could you say it's bad? Like, I didn't say it was bad. I said it was adequate. And then, psh- Cut off. I got, this is unbelievable. These guys did it to me again. I swear. I mean, that, that, is, that is news to me. I will investigate. Right. Mike Ryan going rogue, baby. Um, <laughs> speaking of, make sure you support Mike and Woody. They've done an awesome job watching the World Cup. I tell you, I, I don't think Cody and I are huge soccer guys, but one of the greatest sporting events ever, that World Cup final. I still can't believe oh my God, how dude. awesome it was. It is, I, I have not gotten it over either. <laughs> I watched it with my dad, and then we had hours of football, and then like I was back in my dad's house for dinner. And I just, we looked at each other like, I haven't stopped thinking about it. Like this, all this football yesterday was on all that football on, on Sunday, just after that World Cup game, I didn't like, right. I watched it, but I don't remember any of it. All I remember is the World Cup game. It, it was awesome. I mean, any sport, as I always say, when it's at its best, it's awesome. Doesn't matter what the sport is. Could be handball, could be cricket. When it's at its best, it was awesome. And certainly Argentina uh, living up to its billing against France with an epic match. Speaking of epic, though. That's what we're talking when it comes to Avatar. Finally in theaters. If you need a refresher course, as do I, because I don't remember much about Avatar because I saw the original film and I appreciated its 
tactical wizardry. Certainly James Cameron doing something nobody else had done before when it came to the high def and 3D and the use of those cameras. But as far as the storyline was concerned, I, like many, said, well, it's just like Dances with Wolves, right? It's a big tree-hugger movie, environmentally friendly. I appreciate what he's going for here, but eh, some of the dialogues and the characters. But he's back. And as I mentioned on last week's episode, very, very ambitious. Not only Avatar 2, which is a $350 million budget, but also Avatar 3, he's cooking up, and he's written scripts for Avatar 4 and 5. But as you said, unless Avatar 2 is a hit, obviously they're not going to keep giving me all this money to do all these things. So if you need a refresher course, as I said, maybe it would have helped to have watched the first Avatar, but I didn't watch it again. I just went in. I hadn't seen it whatever 13 years. Took my kids to go see it. It's visually dazzling. There's no question about it. Like James Cameron does it again. Do you do 3D? Sorry to jump in. No, I do 3D. 3D? I thought about it though. You're right. It was a seven o'clock showing and the eight o'clock showing. The eight o'clock 3D, and I go, this is over three hours. I'm not. I'm not going to make it to the end. Now I asked the guy. I said, Have you seen it yet? He's like, Yeah. Do you you need the 3D? He's like. No, because some of it's animated at times. Like, the 3D isn't totally necessary. I just find the 3D experience, I mean, I've done it. You feel a little goofy the whole time, but I, I never get the huge added attraction. You Like, when you see a movie in 3D, do you feel like there's added bonus to you? It doesn't really do much for me. I'm not opposed to it, yeah. but I'm that child that has to, like, three times throughout the movie, look down and, like, <laughs> pull the glasses down and just see what it looks like not 3D. Right. How much I'm different like, is like, it I don't this? care how many times I've seen it. I know it's going to look blurry, yeah. but I'm just interested. I'm like, oh, this thing's swimming at me. Let me see what it looks like. Up, oh, blurry. Cool. Yeah. No, I'm with you too. I'm always curious what it would it be without this? What if I just lost my glasses? And, and yeah. the whole thing is this. I'm with you. Like I, I, I appreciate an added bonus being available, but it's not mandatory to me. Unless people are running after me saying, you have to see it in 3D. I'm like, okay, like, I'm sure it's cool in 3D, but I'll see it as it is. And as I said, I like the idea does. of a modern day Mr. Magoo being made. In the opening scene, he's at the movies and he thinks he's just still can't see, but he's just at a 3D movie without the glasses. <laughs> And then he walks out of the theater. He's like, oh, I can see now. I can see again. It's this 3D world I was <laughs> it's in. It's just a 3D movie. Listen, I'm going to patent that stuff, man. Someone's going to steal that idea from Cody. Also make a movie out of this. Uh, whether it's 3D or not, uh, as I mentioned, visually dazzling. It looks like a video game at times. I mean, there's, there's tons of action in this movie. That was part of my fear. I said three hours plus. Man, there's going to be a lot of just boring scenes of monotonous storytelling. But it's a lot of action. I mean, almost at times wall-to-wall action. And the deep-sea photography. I mean, just the crystalline look of that blue. It's something that's hard to get out of your head. And I do think the narrative was a little better this time. There's some new characters introduced. I mean, if you remember the old film, the Sam Worthington's character, Zoe Saldana, Sigourney Weaver cameo. So there is some new characters introduced as well. But bottom line is, it's just too long. I mean, I I went to actually time it because I said, well, they say 7 o'clock, but I don't think it started till 7.22, according to my watch, and then it ended... 1024. So that's three hours and two minutes. And I'm not necessarily opposed to a long film. I mean, I love The Irishman. I love Lords of Arabia. But ultimately, to me, I, I did think he should have trimmed the fat a little bit. But I can appreciate when you get a $350 million budget, when you've made the highest grossing movie of all time, it's tough to tell yourself, you know, let me just whittle this down to 220 or 210. Yeah. Like, I kind of want to empty the tank. So uh, James Cameron does it again. I, I think it's a su- successful film. I'm curious how the box office is going to be, especially in today's world. I was looking at the, the numbers overall. The box office for this year is at 60% of what it was in 2019 pre-COVID. And one-tenth of that was one movie, which is Top Gun Maverick. So people are, are nowhere near back to the movie-going levels they were pre-COVID. Like, we're at 60% of 2019. Streaming, right? That's got to be, like, yeah. the, 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 how much of the pie chart is just streaming, though, right? I mean, exactly. yeah, the pandemic affected it, but it's just we're streamers now. Right. People say, I just don't feel the need to have to go to the movies. I'll just watch something on TV. I'll watch The Queen's Gambit. I'll watch uh, whatever the hell this uh, princess... Or I'll uh, watch it when it comes out. I'll rent correct. it on when it's on HBO Max. I'll like, yeah. I don't know. Yeah, it doesn't mean people don't love movies. It's just there's less of a rush to go out to see the movie. The Banshees yeah. of Inner Sharon, which is one of my favorite films of the year, coming on October 28th. It's now on HBO. So if you're just like, oh, I'll just wait two months. I'll watch it on HBO. No problem. 
Important question on yeah. on Avatar, though. As yeah. I haven't seen it yet. Fan of the first one. Excited to see this one. I probably will venture out to see it in theater because of how big it is. Yeah. Um, did anyone at any point in the theater, one of the lieutenants, say, Welcome to Pandora? <laughs> because... If no. that didn't happen, I'm yeah. a little less excited about the movie. I'm sure it happened at some point. I may have been nodding off at that point or working <laughs> on a slushie, but I'm sure at some point we got a welcome to Pandora. To Pan- no, it's welcome yeah. to Pandora. <laughs> are you? How often are you a movie? You know, movie savant. Mm-hmm. I'd call you falling asleep in a movie theater. Well. Listen, with Avatar 2 specifically, I knew, I'm like, it's going to be a challenge when we get to like, you know, 10-ish. But not that I'm, it's just, it's three hours straight, right? So I, I generally don't. And if it happens to me, I'm pissed. Like there's that time yeah. I'll get that heavy eyelid moment. But I, sometimes I get a little too comfortable for my own, you know what I mean? I, I go reclining seat. I put the feet up. So it's my oh, own yeah. fault. I've got to be like, no, 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 you, you've got to be, you know. What's your routine to snap out of that feeling? Because I've gotten that feeling because there's two times you get that feeling. Most It's in a movie theater or when you're like early morning driving and you're like, yeah. I got to snap out of this. Yeah. I need to. For me in the car, it's a little slap on the face. Yes. Maybe put some music on and start singing like a song I want to sing along with. So I'm like, I'll roll the window down. Get a little fresh air going. If it's oh, a little way. fresh air. I like that. But what about in a movie theater, though? In a movie theater, sorry, I just have to kind of, I, I kind of do the slap you myself. You sit up. You like kind of sit yeah, up. Sit up and I'm like on the edge of the seat, like as if I'm taking an exam and as if someone's watching me. So just don't get too comfortable. If I'm the really, The recliner really comes down. You t- you like put the feet down. You're sitting up now. Yes, yes. So if I ever see you emerge from your recliner, midway through the movie I know you're tired yeah, 100% I'm like I'm killing myself I gotta snap into action if it's a really desperate moment I'll go to the bathroom and just slap cold water on myself but I, wow. I, I won't often go to that extent like if I'm that yeah. tired I'm like screw it I'm just going to bed the movie's not that good right. but have you case, ever I've done that before too where I've just taken the L yeah. and it's like I'm not really loving this movie anyways my yeah. wife's here watching it just gonna go to sleep. Yeah, and then at some point she nudges you and go, "Are you sleeping?" And you're like, "No, I'm no, not no. sleeping." But I'm completely nodding off for 10, 15 minutes. It's a good cat nap. <laughs> I wake up refreshed. If it's a good ending, yeah. great. If it's not, well, I didn't miss much, anyways. Yeah. Avatar. I'm giving it three Maple Leafs once again. Good movie. Very good movie from James Cameron. He does it again. We'll see what kind of uh, box office returns that will get. What I really want to talk about, though. Oh, by the way, we'll get a couple of reviews in there. I mentioned the one that just completely slagged the film. Most of the reviews have been uh, solid. Seventy-eight percent Rotten Tomatoes. Not overwhelmingly strong, but solid reviews. Uh, Sarah Stewart of Book and Film. Globe delivers on its promise of expanding the scope of Pandora. And Rafer Guzman of Newsday, Avatar The Way of Water is fully engrossing, always eye-popping, and occasionally touching. Like its predecessor, it's a movie to admire and enjoy, if not quite love. But the other day, if you love Avatar, if you walk around telling people Avatar's my favorite movie, like, you just love blue people. Like, it's just such an <laughs> odd... Like, you know what I mean? It's something you must love the Smurfs, you love Blue Man Group. Like, that was the best line of Arrested Development. He's like, I blew myself. He's like, there's got to be a better way to say that. But I, I, I'm always a little That's weird. such a funny take. If yeah. Avatar's your favorite movie of all time, you just like blue people. Yeah. Because after a while, because like, I'm sitting there going, is this one of the best films of the year? I'm like, ultimately, it is just a bunch of blue people talking. A bunch of strange people, weird ears and stuff. Like, I can't I can't fall in love with these characters. I can appreciate them. Yeah. I don't know if I can fall in love with them. So does, like, the, the, the it's called Avatar, the way of water. Mm. So, like, is... That inv- like I'm assuming just water like what how is the what's the connection to the story without giving too much away sure uh, water and the story you're, I mean seventy percent of the movie you're underwater you feel like if it's constantly Jack is underwater they're on islands they're they're using water to their own means how is water- it the same thing where the man's coming for their underwater stuff and they gotta uh, fight for it let's just, let's just say environment does play a part once again just- <laughs> so it's the same one except underwater this time <laughs> I'm not gonna go that far but the similar themes okay. <laughs> 
Um, let's talk about Babylon, which is roaring into theaters this Friday. A tale of outsized ambition and outrageous excess. It traces the rise and fall of multiple characters during an era of unbridled decadence and depravity in early Hollywood. Give it up for Damien Chazelle. This is a mighty swing for the fences. He wrote the script and he directed it. He made Whiplash, which kind of announced his arrival. It was a really quietly controlled, intense film. Won an Academy Award for J.K. Simmons who was so good in that movie and obviously made a star of Miles Teller as it kind of announced his arrival. Then he makes La La Land, which is a spectacular song and dance film. The sequences in that are just breathtaking. The choreography, the opening song is amazing. And now he says, you know what? I want to make Babylon. I'm going to make an $80 million movie about the silent film era. You talk about financial risks. I mean, again, I don't know if Avatar 2 is going to make a billion dollars. Probably. Well, we'll figure it out. But Babylon, the fact that Damien Chazelle was able to convince the studio, give me $80 million. I want to make a film about the movie industry from 100 years ago. I mean, you talk about tough sell. Now, I think it's a very good movie. It's wildly entertaining, but I just, I just can't see it being necessarily a financial win. But what do I care? I'm not, the, I'm not the studio. I'm here to enjoy the movie. And the movie itself, well, let me tell you this. Well, the first scenes of the film, um, you've got two characters who are, who are literally trying to push a cart up. There's an elephant. And the sequence shows an elephant literally taking a dump on these two guys. <laughs> and this isn't just like a little, you know, something that you squeamish. Ron McGill would appreciate. This is a, just an elephant taking a giant dump. The next scene you go to, this movie opens up a 30-minute party-slash-orgy scene. And you see a hooker come out. The guy's big gut sticking out. She starts peeing on him. I go 10 minutes into Babylon. You got an elephant taking a dump and golden showers. Like, like, where is this film going from now? I'm but intrigued. It, it's Not going to lie. Intrigued. And then you got Margot Robbie showing up, as gorgeous as ever, Golden Globe nominee for Best Actress. Although if she wins the Oscar, they might want to rename it, rather than Best Actress, call it Most Actress. I mean, it's definitely a over-the-top, histrionic performance, but there's no question. She's entertaining. She's funny. She's playing a silent film actress who's trying to break into that world and is obviously more talented than people realize. She's got her Jersey accent. She's a real tough, hard edge. But when the camera comes on, she pops and she becomes a movie star. The movie also co-stars Brad Pitt, who does have his amusing moments. You've seen it in the trailer where he's dancing, being silly. But he's also quieter and more subdued. He's more self-aware of the fact silent movies are coming to an end. He's been a big star, but now the talkies are coming. And his character was actually based on a composite of two actual actors who, who found it very tough to transition from silent movies to talkies. And you say, well, why is that? But I'm like... Look at what a difference it is. If you're a silent film actor, it's all about your presence. Once your voice gets used, that's a different instrument. So all of a sudden, your, your acting style is different. And being able to use your voice, and maybe audiences aren't used to the sound of your voice, how you're using it, hitting your marks, etc. So I thought Pitt's performance was particularly very good because it was more grounded than Robbie's performance. Both of them, by the way, nominated for Golden Globes. Pitt's up for Best Supporting Actor. But the way I would describe it as a blurb, this is like Wolf of Wall Street set in the Roaring Twenties. You've got Scorsese-esque tracking shots, thrilling jazz score, Drugs, booze, partying, decadence, debauchery, all of it's going on. Diego Calva plays the main role. He's that guy who the audience identifies with, kind of looking around at the party scene, going, what is going on here? This is out of control. Um, and he's very good in the movie. Jeff Garland has a cameo. Love Kirby Enthusiasm. Yeah. Former guest of Cinephile. He shows up in the movie. It's much merriment and delirium. And there's also a really hilarious behind-the-scenes shooting. There's one scene within a scene where Margot Robbie's trying to nail something, and they're first experimenting with sound. It's one of the funniest scenes here. They do like 10 different takes. Sound technicians get mad. The ADs get mad. Directors get mad. She's getting mad. It's just a whole challenge of sound, but it's, it's a really funny sequence. But Man. ultimately, as I said, Babylon, it's a movie for movie people. Um, you know, it's, it's a movie for cinephiles. If you appreciate, not even silent film, just what film was like 100 years ago. It's overstuffed, and it's definitely excessive and ridiculous, 
but I appreciate the ambition. I appreciate the audacity. And Tobey Maguire actually showing up again. Hadn't seen him in a movie in years. Maguire shows up like in the final third of the movie. It, I don't even want to give it away. It's just one of the most disgusting, strangest sequences you can imagine is he takes them into a party where there's this lair where there's this crazy stuff going on. The actual ending of the film is just an homage to movies, which is really, again, bold from Damien Chazelle. As I said, it's a mighty swing for the fences. I'm sure at times it's going to strike out for some people. It's a love it or hate it type movie, but most of it, I loved it. I'm giving it three and a half Maple Leafs. This is going to sound so millennial of me. Silent movies. How did they, like, they can't be good. Oh, come on. They can't be good. (laughs) <laughs> like how is there pl- like how are mo- how do you progress like it, it's just all silent like well one of my favorite all like my, my favorite silent movie is called Sunrise which is by F W Murnau the great German expressionist and to your so point- in this movie yeah. are do the people interact or is it like are they mouthing no, no, words and you just mouth don't it, and then it goes to um, like a credit sequence and you see the words being written so it's like you see them mouthing it and then it's white on black saying how dare you talk to me like that and then it goes back to them walking oh, together and then it's like sounds boom, terrible. Like, but- not in Babylon. I'm saying in the actual silent. Films. No, I know yeah, in yeah. real silent. Yeah, I, yeah, yeah. I want. I'm intrigued. Honestly, what's your favorite one? I want to so watch it, that. One. Sunrise is fantastic. Maybe yeah. for the new year, the first episode <laughs> of the new year, I will watch that and give you my it thoughts. It came out in on 1927. That. Like I don't know if you're going to be able. Like 95 years ago, you're going to watch this film. I think it, it's. Was awesome. it on HBO Max? What is it? It's probably yeah. It's probably on HBO Max. I was going to say it's probably on TCM. <laughs> Sight and Sound just released. There's this you know, collection of like real film intellectuals. They do their best 100 movies of all time every 10 years. So, you know, 2012 was the last time. They right. It just came out. The number one movie, nobody's even heard of. Like, th- this is how obscure it is. Like, I saw that and I go, I've never even heard of this movie. After that, there's movies I've heard of. Like, The Godfather previously was number one or number three, was number 12. I'm like, what? How is this not, not the top 10? But like, the number movie, one movie is called Janine. And I was like, no one's even heard of this film. It was a French film. After that, really? movies you've heard of. No, I'm kidding. But like, you know, I Vertigo, Hitchcock's Vertigo was number two. I'm bringing this up because Murnau's film, the one that I love, Sunrise, I believe, may have made the top ten. Top I, Gun Maverick? Where no, is top, it, no or... that did not make the top ten. Okay. Gene Dealman is the number one film of all time on the sight and sample. It came out in early December. Vertigo, Hitchcock's film number two, which is awesome. F.W. Murnau's Sunrise is in the top ten. But as far as like movies you and I have heard of, you have to get like The Godfather number 12. Sound wow. of Music. Number one is Gene Dealman, 23 Quad du Commerce. Vertigo. Are you like, have you seen that? You must be intrigued no, to watch I, it. I, I got to see it. One. It's the greatest film of all time, 1975 French film. And apparently it is on HBO Max. I got to look that up. Vertigo's two, Citizen Kane's three, Tokyo Story four, In the Mood for Love five, 2001 A Space Odyssey six, Beau Travai is number seven, Mulholland Drive 2001 came out number eight. Man is with Space the movie Odyssey Cameron. good? Space Odyssey is awesome. Oh my God. Great. I got to yeah. watch oh, that. You got to see that. Watch, watch it with your dad. You watch yeah. with Stugatz, actually. He'll drop a couple of those, and you'll be, he'll be ready to rock. <laughs> Man on the movie camera. Singing in the Rain is number 10. Sunrise, the one I told you about, silent film, number 11. Godfather, number 12. Anyways, that was just an aside. If you want to watch your silent movies, number 12 <laughs> movie of all time, F.W. Bernard's Sunrise. Maybe, maybe Chris Cody will watch that with a review forthcoming. Uh, another film to talk about, which is coming out this Friday, it's Women Talking. The synopsis. Oh, sorry, let's get a couple of reviews here of Babylon, in case you're wondering. Uh, Thomas Laffley, shimmering, mournful, and riotous. Babylon is one of the year's best movies, thanks in part to a star-making performance by Diego Calva. Uh, Radayan Sumanpali of CTV's Your Morning, La La Land on Coke. That's pretty yeah, good. Yeah, I like that one. And Matt Singer of Screen Crush. Chazelle is so enamored with his simulcrum of this forgotten world that he loses sight of the people in it. Ouch. Mm. I disagree. I, I think he knows what he's doing. Women Talking, coming out this Friday. Canadian director Sarah Pauly, she wrote and directed. She's nominated for the Golden Globe Best Screenplay. There's a synopsis. Do nothing. Stay and fight. 
or leave. In 2010, the women of an isolated religious community grapple with reconciling a brutal reality with their faith. Excellent cast. Rooney Mara, Jesse Buckley, uh, Claire Foy, Francis McDormand, Emily Mitchell, uh, many others. Ben Wishaw playing like the one male who is actually a sympathetic figure. Polly adapted the book. And she mentioned the fact that I didn't want to actually show the sexual assault. It's about a bunch of women in this community who have been sexually assaulted. She goes, I'm not going to show that, though. I'm not going to show the rape. To me, there's nothing positive being gleaned from that. I'll show the aftermath. I'll show these women bloodied and damaged both physically and emotionally. And what are they supposed to do? And this movie is a pretty bold concept. It's a bunch of women in a hayloft. It was shot in Toronto at a soundstage. And they're going to sit around and discuss what should they do? What are their options? These men are terrorizing them. You know, they've, they've raped them. They've abused them. What do you do? Now, the film is coming with much fanfare. I was very excited for it. But I got to tell you, as my wife turned to me halfway through and she was on her phone looking at reels on Instagram, this movie is just a lot of women talking. <laughs> I said, yeah, that's the movie. It's an hour 40. And she goes, I thought there'd be a little bit more action. I go, no, they're, they're in a hayloft and they're talking. That, that's the movie. When it says women talking, there's no car chases. There's no romance here. It's women talking. They're arguing. They're fighting for their lives. And... I have to be honest with you, it was a little stilted for my taste. Uh, again, I appreciate the acting. I like the script by Sarah Pauly because it is intelligent and I think it's inventive in its own way. She tries to add some directorial flourishes, some flashbacks, and um, it, it is an important subject matter. But again, as a movie, it's going to be tough to recommend to somebody, hey, December 24th, the night before Christmas, go watch an hour 40 of women talking and how to deal with sexual abuse. The story itself, by the way, Again, you think while watching, it's like set in the 1930s, but that's one of the craziest parts of it. It's a Mennonite community in 2010 being treated by these, by these men like this. The women who are saying, let's leave, saying, hey, we haven't made a pact with God. We're not going to leave. These men will be punished one day. You know, it's more important. Jesus taught us to forgive. Those who want to leave say, no, I'm tired of this crap. Like, they're going to keep mistreating us and go. And some of the women are like, no, we're going to stay and fight. Like, we're going we're to get these guys back. Like, the Lord also taught us about vengeance. So it's rare to see themes of religion being put in films these days, and certainly uh, a story female empowerment is important, but as far as an entertaining film, I've got to go with two and a half Maple Leafs for women talking, despite the noble effort from Sarah Pauly. Charlotte O'Sullivan of London Evening Standard, lovers of the novels of Marilyn Robinson or Elizabeth Strout will swoon over the film's pacing. Its aesthetic is just as quietly bold. Robbie Collin of Daily Telegraph, despite a morose color palette that can feel a little eat-your-vegetables at times, the film is beautifully performed and gripping in a chewy, nuanced, contemplative way. And Adam Naiman of The Ringer, I like this review, what holds up on the page is a sociologically loaded thought experiment about complicity and forgiveness is undermined by Polly's monotonous cornering of her own arguments and some undisciplined filmmaking choices. Women talking... I liked it. I didn't love it. I'm going two and a half Maple Leafs. A few more here for you. The Inspection. I watched this film for one reason, one reason only. Jeremy Pope is nominated for Best Actor Golden Globe. And here's the story. A young gay black man rejected by his mother and with few options for his future decides to join the Marines, doing whatever it takes to succeed in a system that would cast him aside. You know, in a world of bloated movies here, Avatar was three hours and two minutes. Babylon was three hours and one minute. This is a film which is nice and tight. The inspection is 90 minutes long, and it is based on the real-life experiences of Elegance Bratton. What an awesome name, by the way. Elegance Bratton, writer and director. It's based on his own experiences, as he himself was a young gay black man in the Marines, facing homophobia and just mistreatment and just horrible, horrible situations. Bokeem Woodbine plays the 
a drill instructor in charge. He plays Laws. Pope plays a man named Ellis French. And Gabrielle Union, Mrs. Dwayne Wade, she plays uh, Inez French, who's his mother. Now, again, based on real life, his mother rejected him for being gay. And Gabrielle Union is here a couple of times talking to him as he's going towards the military. And she's telling him, you know, they're going to know who you are. Like, they're, they're going to they're beat the gay out of you, so to speak. And she's rejected him, and he's looking for somewhere belonging. And where does he go? He goes to boot camp. And he can't keep his secret quiet for long. Eventually, they find out he's gay. They're mistreating him. But his performance is one of real intensity. I mean, the way he keeps his, his dignity and his ferocity, despite the fact he's being mistreated, he wants to prove he can be a Marine. He wants to be desperately involved and belonging somewhere. And he's hoping it's here in the Marines. And one of the, the better performances in the movie is from Raul Castillo. He plays Rosales. At one point, you know, Pope's character's you can imagine these guys are putting him through the grinder. And Rosales is like the one sympathetic character. He's kind of like Willem Dafoe's character in Platoon. And, you know, he's kind of not taking a shine to Pope, but he's looking out for him saying, listen, man, like we need you here and blah, blah, blah. But then Pope ends up fantasizing about him. Like he's in the bathroom one day. He's, he's fantasizing that Rosales is going to come. He's going to start blowing him. And at one point, Rosales is taking a shower at night. Pope shows up, you know, completely buck naked, starts to make a move. And Rosales is like, hey, easy, easy. Like, like look, get in your clothes and we talk to you outside. He's like, I'm not gay. But you know how many gay guys we've had in the military? Like, we can't just weed all of you guys out. Like, I'm not into this thing, but I'm into you being here, and I want to be here for you and protect you. And it's a really good scene, and, and you can see even Pope's sadness. Like, his guy's just getting his ass kicked, and there's this one guy who's being kind to him, and he's emotionally attracted to him, and this guy's stomping on his heart while still saying, hey, I appreciate you, I just don't appreciate you in that manner. But... Excellent performances. Uh, Pope might get an Oscar nomination. Gabrielle Union is amazing. Like, she, she ends up coming back in the movie a little bit later on. And I'm mean, talking about a woman. Oof, she is not supportive of her son and his choices of being gay. And it's, uh, as I said, based on a true story by Elegance Bratton. I'm giving it three beliefs. I was pleasantly surprised by The Inspection, which is a very good movie. I was very disappointed by our next film, White Noise, starring Adam Driver. Who doesn't love Adam Driver? John Oliver's got a huge crush on him. The movie's called White Noise. It's in limited theaters, and it's on Netflix on December 30th. Here's the story. Dramatizes a contemporary American family's attempts to deal with the mundane conflicts of everyday life while grappling with the universal mysteries of love, death, and the possibility of happiness in an uncertain world. While at Moss, Miami, somebody actually came up to me and goes, hey, have you seen White Noise? And I said, no, I'm, I'm curious to see it. I have the screener. And and he goes, I read the book, and I said, I've heard the book is unfilmable. Like, I hear it's an awesome book by Don DeLillo, but good luck making a movie. And clearly, they didn't make a very good movie. Noah Baumbach <laughs> wrote and directed it. This is the same guy who did Marriage Story. He's obviously a very talented writer-director. Marriage Story was one of my top ten films of that year. Driver was incredible in that movie, as was Scarlett Johansson. But this movie is an absolute misfire. I mean, this is one of the worst films of the year. It is completely witless and, and frustrating and annoying, and it was difficult to get through. And I, I get what it's going for. It's trying to be satirical and funny and goofy and light. And I must credit Netflix. They sent me a ton of stuff. Wow, they're really trying to buy me over. They sent me a giant book of white noise, just like pictures from the movie, picture books, so to speak, stories, anecdotes. They sent me the screenplay of white noise. They sent me an A&P sweatshirt, okay, because a lot of this takes place in the supermarket there. Good old A&P shout-out. They sent me a pack of gum, white noise, trying to buy my way, but I'm not going to do it. This is a bad movie all the way around. Even Don Cheadle, who's always a great performer, he can't even save this movie. I just found it to be very drab. 
boring, silly, and ridiculous. I'm giving it one Maple Leap. It's one of the worst films of the year. White Noise. How about these reviews? Donald Clark of Irish Times. The costumeers and makeup folk have worked hard on Gerwig and Driver. Yeah, Greta Gerwig's in it too. Noah Baumbach's real-life wife. But both still look dressed up for a particularly boring Halloween party. The former is 1980s Deirdre Barlow. The latter as recovering train spotter. Dimitri Samarov of Chicago Raider. The structural problems remain. There's a campus comedy, a disaster flick, and a crime caper that never cohere, but I like Blombach's Gladney family much more than DeLillo's. And Linda Merrick of the Jewish Chronicle, departing from his comfort zone of neurotic yet very relatable characters, Blombach has managed to deliver something rather special here. I couldn't disagree more. White Noise premiered at the Venice Film Festival. I remember at the time saying, oh wow, this will be a big Oscar contender. Then the reviews came out and they said they were respectful at best. There's a reason why White Noise is being snubbed. The only nomination, as I mentioned, Adam Driver is up for Best Actor, Comedy, or Musical. Well, that just feels like a nomination because people love Adam Driver. It is not a good film. A couple of blurbs here for The Inspection. Sarah Ty Black of Globe and Mail. With The Inspection, Bratton has continued working with a humanist lens through which he shaped his captivating 2019 documentary, Peer Kids. Nick Shager of The Daily Beast. A stunning look at a gay man's terrifying triumphant time at Marines Boot Camp. And Odie Henderson of Boston Globe. Bratton's unique perspective is so much more interesting when you hear him talk about the inspection that you often wonder where it is when you're watching it. And one last one here, Marcel the Shell with Shoes On. This is proof why you can never trust the critics. 99% right now on Rotten Tomatoes, and I thought it was one of the worst movies of the year. Cloying, infuriating, insufferable. It is an animated movie done as a documentary. It is, as I described, a shell with an eye and two shoes, and it's one of the most honestly obnoxious characters you could possibly imagine it's a documentary of this shell marcel telling you about his life going around the house uh i I honestly thought it was appalling jenny slate is the voice as marcel could not be more obnoxious or infuriating dean fleischer camp is the director critics loved it they went crazy for it maybe they'll get nominated but i thought it was a complete waste of time marcel the show with shoes on so much so i tried watching it my son adine who's 11 watches everything we got 30 minutes in this movie and he goes can we just fast forward a little bit this is pretty boring i don't like documentaries it's 80 minutes and even my kids will watch anything couldn't get through 80 minutes of marcel the show with shoes on one of the worst films of the year i'm giving it one maple leap that's six movie reviews in the book now it's time for our wild card michael Starr, a new book about one of the great insult comics of all time Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Spring is in the air at Littleton Coin Company, and we want to help you brighten your collection. Visit us at littletoncoin.com all month long to enjoy 15% off your purchase. With a wide selection of coins, paper money, supplies, and more, Littleton Coin Company has something for every collector's taste. Use promo code SPRING at littletoncoin.com for 15% off your purchase all month long. Restrictions apply. 
Littleton Coin Company. Serving collectors since 1945. A real pleasure bringing author Michael Starr. The book is called Don Rickles, Merchant of Venom. Michael's a longtime writer of the New York Post. He's written many biographies of uh, terrific comedians and actors of the past. And once again, he has done an excellent job here turning his light towards Mr. Rickles. Michael, thank you so much for the time. Congrats on a terrific book. No, thank you. Thanks for having me on. I, I love the opening anecdote. I'm a huge Sinatra fan, so I love the fact that, you know, that relationship that they had, Rickles and Sinatra, was born of the fact uh, Don was fearless enough to take shots at him. The, the hysterical, the way he just started making fun of him, saying, make yourself at home, Frank, why don't you go slug someone? Well, why do you think Sinatra took such a liking to Rickles? I mean, Sinatra's obviously undeniably charismatic, but why do you think Frank let Rickles make fun of him when Sammy Davis Jr. once took even a small criticism of Frank and Sinatra froze right. him out for years. Why did he let Rickles do it? I, I think some of that had to do with the fact that Don's mother was friends with uh, with Frank's mother, Dolly Sinatra, Etta Rickles. And I think that had something to do with it initially, um, you know, when Frank showed up at the club and Don said he didn't know he was going to be there. Go ahead, Frank, hit somebody. Um, and, and, you know, from there, he just... I think he liked Don's wise-ass New York attitude. Um, and he was just, uh, it's a its a fair point, though, because you're right. I mean, for a little while, Joey Bishop sort of could make fun of Sinatra, but not really, you know, sort of in a way. But nobody was as vicious as Rickles was. But, I, you know, I think Frank knew that Rickles, Don Rickles knew, you know, not when... He, there was a line he would never cross. He would sort of go up to that line and never cross it. And I think um, Sinatra respected that. I mean, listen, it's not. it wasn't easy to be friends with Frank Sinatra, right? As you pointed out, Sammy Davis Jr. couldn't get away with. He, I think it was a radio interview. He made a crack about Frank and, and then he, you know, he was, he was on Frank's, you know, shit list for, for quite a while, but you know, Rick, but Rickles made fun of everybody. And, and I think the fact that he made fun of other celebrities helped also. It wasn't just Sinatra. Yeah. And uh, they had a really nice relationship for, for you know, 50 plus years. One of the best aspects of the book is the fact that you're pointing out there's literally two sides to Don Rickles. There's the guys, you know, the insult comic who's like racist and like making ethnic jokes and just no holds barred. But then also a guy who's an absolute sweetheart and who was beloved by so many people and, you know, doting father, husband, all the rest of it. Where did like the style, the insult comic, where was that born? Like you talk about Rickles and how he's, he starts his comedy. But when did he really realize, you know what, I'm just going to go after people and that's going to be my style of comedy? You know, yeah, Don was playing at a, a strip club down in Washington, D.C. Um, he had he had a, you know, a quote unquote, a stand up act. It was kind of like more like performance art. I mean, he he didn't he would tell stories. He, he was never a joke teller, per se. Um, and he had this thing called part of his act, the man with the glass head, where he would put this like you'd have to imagine he had a glass bowl on his head and, and people could read his thoughts. It was bizarre. It didn't work, obviously. So he was at this. He was paying his dues, and he was at this strip club in in Washington. And and the guys, you know, you know, they were guys there. Started sailors from 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 you know the Navy Yard and stuff. Started to to heckle him, and he just he heckled them back. And he discovered he had this. They laughed. They didn't slug him, and he and he had this. He he discovered he had this um this talent for honing for you know sort of zeroing in on somebody's whether it was their looks or the, what they were wearing. Uh, and, and he would just sort of target on that. And, and other people enjoyed laughing at him making fun of other people 
as long as they weren't the target. But actually, people after a while wanted to be made fun of by Don Rickles. And it was sort of a, a badge of honor. And I think when he was more successful because he could make fun of celebrities and say things to them that the public really wanted to say but couldn't. And and Don just went ahead and spoke his mind, and they knew it was all in fun. Yeah, that's why the only one I can think of today is Ricky Gervais. Like, in the way you're describing somebody who the, the celebrities go, I don't mind him making fun of us at the Golden Globes. But even Gervais will sometimes cross that line, and then yeah. you see the reaction of the audience, whoever's being offended, yeah. hey, he went a little bit too far. But you're right, it's, it's a really tough challenge to do that. And it's almost like Rickles, like I think he wrote in the book, he was almost grandfathered in, like him and Rodney Dangerfield could do that. Like, I don't think a Don Rickles could survive today. I, I know I'm saying Gervais is kind of like that, but to be like Don, it's, no, I don't think you no. can do it. I don't think you can do it either. I mean, it, it was the tenor of the times when Don came of age as, a, as an insult comic where, for the most part, comics at that time were, they weren't doing what Don was doing. They're, you know, mother-in-law jokes and, you know, boy, I took this flight and, you know, boy, it was a terrible... Here comes this guy making fun of people. and But it, it was such a, a human connection because, let's face it, everybody's critical and everybody's thinking they might be thinking the same thing. You know, that guy's fatter. How could he marry? You know, Don would say, you know, is that your wife or, you know, is it a moose? You know, <laughs> and, and, but, but people laughed. I mean, you know, there, yes, he, there were times he did cross the line. And there are some stories in the book of when he was in Vegas in the early 60s and he made fun of a... A, a, a mobster from New Jersey, his wife and the mobster, you know, would threaten to break Don's legs. And Don reached out to his friend, Connie Francis, who knew people. She was connected back in Jersey and Don's le legs lived to see the rest of his life. But people had a sense of humor about it. And let's face it, if you once Don made a name for himself, you knew what you were going to see and you knew what you were going to get. Even people who went to see him in Las Vegas, they knew. I mean, and the, the it was funny because the people who ran the entertainment, let's say he was at the Sahara, which he played at for a long time, the entertainment manager would pick out people that he knew Don was going to focus in on and put them in like the first, second or third row within Don's eyesight. And, you know, and boom, it was, you know, what, is that your wife or is, you know, what are you wearing? You, you look like, a, you know, what are you, a schmuck, you know, blah, blah, blah. And, but he made fun of everybody, all races, creeds, ethnicities, Don was Jewish. He made fun of Jewish people. He made fun of blacks, Hispanics, across the board. And I think that that was what, quote unquote, allowed him to get away with it was because he wasn't focusing in on one specific ethnic group. He made fun of everybody, including himself and his wife. And, um, you know, and so nothing was off limits, but people could laugh at it. And he would he would sometimes go a little too far at the end of his act saying, you know, I mean, you know, I love everybody. I make fun. It's like, you know, almost like thou doth protest too much. But people accepted it. It was the tenor of the times that, as you said, it, you know, today there's no way he'd be canceled in five minutes. I mean, he might be grandfathered. And if he was still alive and he was, you know, 90 year old Don Rickles, he did towards the end of his career when he was uh, I think it was in 2012. He was part of an American Film Institute. Um tribute to Shirley MacLaine. And he made, you know, he made fun of Shirley. You can watch it on YouTube. He made fun of Shirley MacLaine. Every, everybody who was there, Martin Scorsese, he had just made a film with him. But he did make a Barack Obama joke, who was, you know, president then, something about, you know, I invited Obama over, but he didn't bring his mop. You know, and everybody was like, <gasps> you know, it was Hollywood, a very liberal audience. The gasp. And then like 30 seconds later, he had him back in the palm of his hand and all they had forgotten about the joke and he went on and yeah. interestingly enough though when they when they did air that on tv they 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 cut the obama joke so 
I guess there were some things that even Don Rickles couldn't get away with, but he never he re- he was rarely political in that sense. I mean, he funded he was friendly with Ronald Reagan. So, you know, he he made make fun of Reagan's age and, you know, Nancy and everything. But it was very good natured. He he never he made fun of politicians across the board like he did uh, with people and their looks and their mannerisms. So it was accepted. But, yeah, I don't think today he, he could he couldn't get away with it. I think Jay Leno made a great point when he said it wasn't necessarily the joke as it was written, but it was Don's delivery and his style of it. The facial muggings, the expressions, yeah. the tone. Like it, because if, if you yeah. saw the joke as written, he goes, it wasn't necessarily very funny. He goes, but when Rickles did it, it was inimitable and hysterical. Yeah, and it was that rapid fire patter. I th- there's some quotes in the book from um, from a writer who says, you know, if you actually listen to some of Don's Mon, you know, when, when he's making fun of people, what are you saying? Like, makes no sense. If you think about it, you know, I'm going to shoot a, a brocket out of my ass. And blah, blah, you know, it's like, you know, I'm going to sit in a rubber tree and, you know, show you up. But but it was you're right. It was the way he delivered it. And 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 if you were in the audience and you could see him live, his, his the facial, his facial expressions, the way he he would prowl the stage like a panther, you know, sweating and and, you know, with the eyes bulging and, you know, pointing the finger. Um, but you know, and but I, to me, one of the one of the greatest ways to see Rickles, especially in the '60s and '70s, was on late night television. I mean, when he was on that, when he mo- it was mostly. I mean, he did all the late night shows, but the Johnny Carson sh- uh, shows are classics, especially when Sinatra was on. Yeah. And um, you know, Don would walk on unannounced, like Bob Hope would do sometimes. Sit down. Didn't matter who was sitting next to him. He would turn Ed McMahon. He would rip into Ed. He'd rip into Sinatra, Michael Landon, you know, whoever happened to be sitting next to him. Pat Boone, who I don't think appreciated it. But most people did. And it was a badge of honor to be to made, made fun of by the Merchant of Venom. I think a lot of audiences today appreciate his work, you know, in movies, especially something like Casino. You mentioned Scorsese. I was watching when Marty got the AFI Lifetime Achievement Award and Rickles you know, started praising him, but then he started making fun of him and saying, you know, Marty, aside from Clint Eastwood, you're the biggest name here. And now Clint Eastwood is just happy his name was mentioned tonight. Right. But, 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 but the stories from Casino, I mean, there's these great outtakes. You've seen them on YouTube as have I. When he's, you know, making fun of De Niro's mumbling and making fun of Scorsese for being so short. And like, you know, why don't you get a chair, Marty, if you're going to direct. Right. Stand on a but, phone book, Marty, so we can see you. Yeah. Right. <laughs> but I love the story. Tell the audience, to those who have not read the book, how did Ileana Douglas, who was dating Scorsese at the time, and the great Bob Costas, my friend, influence the casting of Don Rickles in Casino? Yeah, it's one of those six degrees, right? It's it's a strange story. Um, Ileana Douglas had seen Don on Bob Costas had the later later with Bob Costas, a late night show on NBC, and he had Don Rickles on. It was a two parter, and Don made Costas laugh so much that he actually literally fell off his chair. And they they broke it up. It was so great that they broke it up into two parts. But also Don got very serious, and he was talking about his son had recently passed away. He was forty one, and he got very worked up talking about his son. But it was so such a personal thing and he was telling such great showbiz stories and Ileana Douglas was was dating Martin Scorsese when they were casting for um Casino and he was looking for kind of like a Vegas kind of hard like a like a Vegas lifer kind of character who could you know who you would believe in this role and she mentioned um Don Rickles she had seen him and she and Don was like so he was like Mr. Vegas right like Wayne Newton and he knew about Vegas. He he knew how the system worked. He had a great sense of humor. Although this role didn't call for humor, but he was such a such like a Vegas character, and she was so impressed with that that she recommended that um, Martin Scorsese watch that interview and get in touch with Don. And, and the rest is history. He he hired him, and and that was 
Don was so proud of that role because he always wanted to be a dramatic actor. It wasn't a huge role. He was in a few scenes, but the fact that he was working with Martin Scorsese, you know, Mr. Goodfellas and 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 and, and De Niro, and it was a serious movie. You know, Don had done movies in the in the sixties. You know, Beach Blanket Bingo and had to stuff a wild bikini, you know, stuff like that. But he had trained as a, as a dramatic act, actor. And he always, I think if there was, if Don, if you, had, if you asked him and he, and he said there was one quote unquote disappointment in his career, it would have been that he didn't make it as a dramatic actor in his mind. Yeah. But he just, love- he loved to act. And I think that was the highlight of his career. And then he had Toy Story at the same yes. time, right? Opening up to a whole generation. It wasn't a, he was playing a, a Mr. Potato Head and younger viewers you know, and an audience discovered Don Rickles and it really gave his career a big boost at that time. Yeah, I and love that Ileana Douglas recommends James Woods to play the scumbag boyfriend. Marty goes, yeah, sure. Don Rickles, he had to be sold on. Like he had to watch yeah, the yeah, yeah, interview first. Yeah. He's like, okay, yeah. James Woods, no problem. He could definitely play the scumbag. Yeah. But Rickles as the face of like a Vegas guy. As you said, the most memorable scene is when Pesci beats him up. That's probably the most well, memorable the telephone, scene. telephone, yeah. Yeah, he kicks the crap out of him. Um, yeah. You mentioned Toy Story. A quick thought of Mr. Potato Head. The fact that he himself joked, you know, my grandsons know me about this after all these years. But that I mean, that's a massive franchise. How much money did he make from that? He made he he was compensated quite well, and he didn't want to do it at first. And and they had a I think John Lasseter that like had a, he met with Rip Don in, in his, his Malibu house to sort of convince him to do this. And Don's like, what about you know what do I know what do I want to do an animated character for? But when he saw you know it was Mr. Potato Head it was kind of a wise guy. It was sort of like Rickles, right? I mean, cleaned up obviously for children, but um, he had that that New York wise guy attitude. Um, targeted to 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 uh, to a younger audience and yes i mean kids knew him from that and his own grandchildren knew him from that they, they didn't know you know the insult comedian making fun of people they knew him you know this, this lovable mr potato head character and it really did open up uh, another door for him I love that you mentioned the Larry Sanders show, which is my favorite show. Rickles was on that show. Just imagine him and Rip Torn swapping stories in that set. But, <laughs> but I wish the show, Richard Lewis is one of my favorite comedians. I wish that show he did with Richard Lewis, Daddy Dearest, would have fared better. But Lewis, I thought, explained it brilliantly. He said, like, Don just wasn't used to this. He wasn't used to memorizing lines, that character. is exactly what you're saying. He's not going to be written for a character. He's like, he's better than him, Jim Graham and Sinatra. And Lewis made the best point, which is that if Rickles had a Kirby Enthusiasm type show, which of course Richard has bombed with his good friend Larry Davis, yes. that, that would have been a huge hit. I'm like, that would have been the perfect vehicle for Don Rickles. Right. You also you also had two two guys on on, on Daddy Dearest who, who were very ingrained in their in their in their personas, right? You had you had Richard the neurotic guy and then you had Don the the and to try to try to put both of them together in a 22 minute sitcom in one box, um, it just I think the styles clashed. And I, I think Richard says that in the book and not in a bad way. I mean, he loved Don and Don enjoyed working with him. It just it didn't it didn't their two styles didn't really mesh well. And again, in a sitcom, you're right. I think it had it been and Richard was right. Had it been a sort of a stream of consciousness, you know, we have sort of an outline of a script, but not really like curb your enthusiasm. For Don, that would have worked a lot better. Uh, the book is fabulous. It's called Merchant of Venom. Those are just a few of the highlights all about Don Rickles. But I encourage all of you to check out the book from Michael Starr, available now in bookstores. And, of course, continue to read his excellent work for the New York Post. Michael, this was fun. Maybe to close, you can give me a couple of your favorite insults that Don Rickles ever gave people, if you have a, if you have a top five, so to speak. Well, I think, yeah, I mean, some of them actually were in the book. There was, uh, you know, he's like, he was, talk- he was talking about Frank Sinatra. And he said, you know, when you enter a room, you have to kiss Frank's ring. I don't mind, but it's in his back pocket. (laughs) (laughs) 
you know, he would talk about Italians, you know, they can work you over, you know, in an alley, but they're singing while they're singing an opera, you know, that, that, that kind of thing, you know, and he, I, one of his favorite targets was, you know, I don't, I can't talk off the top of my head, but Ernest Borgnine, his looks basically, and he would pick on Ernie and they were actually friends and they did the odd couple together in a touring company later on. But when, especially after Borgnine won the Oscar for Marty, I mean, you know, Ernest Borgnine was not being paid for his looks. You know, and Rickles would just go off on him, calling him a gorilla and low-hanging fruit and all that kind of stuff. But yeah, so he was, uh, you know, and he always had the standard line about his wife, right? She's jangling her jewelry, signaling the ships, you know, so they can see the glint from her from her gold jewelry, you know. And he would joke about his honeymoon with his wife, you know. Is it over yet? You know, I haven't even started, you know. So, yeah, he was just... Uh, yeah, and you, I would just urge people, you know, you can go on YouTube and watch Don, a lot of his stand-up stuff, but particularly on late-night television. That's what he, to me, was the best. Yeah, truly one of a kind. Great stuff, Michael. Thank you. Best of luck. Thanks, with Chris. Congrats. Thanks a lot. He called you Chris at the end. He did. <laughs> You're gonna he keep said, thanks, Chris. Thanks, Chris. Just keep him saying thanks, Chris. All right, thanks once again to Michael Starr. I mean, Don Rickles. It's amazing. A different generation of people now know him from Toy Story and Casino, but this guy's been around since the 50s. These old school comedians, Cody, you got to appreciate the longevity of these guys. Don Rickles is... I always have to really think hard to not mix up Don Rickles and Rodney Dangerfield. <laughs> like, like for like part of that interview, I was listening to it. I was like, oh, wait, they're not talking about Rodney Dangerfield. Like Those two, for some reason, I get mixed up. But yes, classic classic comedian Don Rickles. But you're right, because they, they were grandfathered in together. Both in Saw Comics, both kind of big guys, the the, the, the yeah. googly eyes kind of thing. It's a it's an easy mix-up to make. He's uh, so right in that interview talking about how Don at his best, though, was like just uh, sitting on a, on a late night, being a guest on a late night show and yeah. just giving it to the guy. Like I... I, in his older years on Fallon, he did it. Like, even yeah. if it was Fallon or whoever he was on, it was yeah. just, even in his old age, just still, you could see there, like, like he's older now, but still just, n there's no one funnier than this guy. Darren Dimiterio, a buddy of mine who was a, a guest booker on Oberman, I believe now still works on Get Up at ESPN. He worked on Letterman for years as a guest booker, and he said, you know, they book Rickles however many times. Letterman never wanted to go for dinner with anybody. It was Letterman that Rickles had Rickles, yes. not, not Fallon, yeah. But in the book, he even mentions that at one point, Rickles reached out to Letterman's assistant like would Dave like to go for dinner and she's like yeah he's pretty reclusive but when she asked Letterman he's like yeah sure and then on the, on the show he was like hey Don Rickles invited me for dinner and she was like oh no now everyone's going to want to go for dinner with Letterman but <laughs> Dave was willing to do it with Rickles the second time Rickles did the show Darren Dimiterio my good friend who was maybe 5'6 when Rickles walked by him goes oh you've grown since the last time I saw you like, yes. <laughs> <laughs> like, like it was a it was off air he got giving it to a producer right it's, it's, Still just doing shtick. Yeah, it's it's the good life of Don Rickles. Anyways, thanks so much to everybody for supporting Cinephile. This is episode 252. So thanks to everybody for supporting the pod. We'll be back next year with another strong episode. Uh, happy happy holidays to everybody. Merry Christmas. Happy it was a Hanukkah. fun year, Adnan. I, year, I enjoyed doing this podcast with you. Thank I wanted you, to give you a little end of the year, a little... I appreciate you, man. I appreciate you, too. I appreciate all the hard work. You got all this other stuff you're doing. You're doing your dad's podcast. You're doing the Levitard show. You're trying to keep up appearances with other people. Uh, sheets and giggles, <laughs> obviously shiggles. I appreciate you giving this time here instead of Bob, my man. Uh, thanks to Laura Brandt, our entire crew. Thanks to Bimmel. Thanks to Skipper. I'm Adnan Burke. Once again, our episode next episode, the first one of January, All Quiet on the Western Front, which is available currently on Netflix, The Sun, starring Hugh Jackman, and my top 10 films of 2022. Happy holidays, everybody. I'll see you at the movies. 
is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.